Hi there. Welcome and thank you for listening in. I'm super stoked to have you with me. My name is Philip Hartmann and Being Dad is a show for dads. I meet and speak to unique dads, asking them to impart their wisdom and to share their experiences as dads with us. The reason for being dad is my own story. I became a father five times within 13 months. Yes, five times, 13 months. I was seriously underprepared and I struggled to find inspiring content for myself. By meeting and connecting with these men, I'm trying to learn all there is about being a dad. We cover heart-to-heart topics between two dads and our aim is to inspire other fathers. And with this, hopefully we can make a positive impact on families around the world. Hi, my name is Warren Rustand. I'm from Tucson, Arizona in the United States of America and I'm here in Cape Town today uh, talking with Philip about being a dad. And of all the things that I've done in my lifetime, I've had a chance to lead corporations, to lead community-based and non-governmental organizations, uh, to be very active in sports. But the most important thing and the most important work I've ever done has been in my own home with our family, co-parenting with my wife. Um, she clearly is CEO material, and so we've been co-CEOs for a long period of time. We've raised seven children. We have 19 grandchildren. Uh, we all live together on a common property, a multi-generational family. So whatever I have to say comes from my own experience. It comes from our own opportunities that we've had within our family. But dads, don't forget, the greatest work you're going to do is within the walls of your own home. My next guest is an inspiring leader. He's a businessman and of course he's a dad. He has seven children and 19 grandchildren. His name is Warren Rustand. To me, This session is truly impactful, probably the best one yet. And to this day, I have never met another dad as clear and as focused as Warren. Warren is 77 today. He's an ex-NBA player, a White House fellow, and later served as White House appointment secretary to the US president. Warren is the past chairman of the World's President Organization and various other impressive things. In business, Warren has listed numerous times sat on many boards and has led big companies. Despite all of this, his true passion is family. And this is where his main focus lies. I had never met Warren before this interview. And when I finally did, I told him right away, I wanted to speak to Warren the dad, not the businessman, not the CEO, and not the public servant. To my surprise, he didn't hesitate for a second and he agreed right away. What followed was a profound share of experience and wisdom of a seasoned dad and family man with defined priorities and clarity of vision. In this episode, Warren takes us through his learnings as a father of seven and a grandfather of 19 kids. He explains his family mission and vision system, and he tells us how he managed to create a successful family that shares their lives on a multi-generational farm today. Warren gives valuable practical advice on parenting and marriage. He runs us through his value and belief system, clear overarching principles, priorities and how he drives and achieves positive results in his family life. If you've never listened to a podcast for dads, this is the one. The most powerful takeaways for me as a dad were, ask your child what she wants from life, start early and do it often. If you have a family vision and clear values defined, things become a lot easier. Teach your kids to work and create a family bank. I like that one. Apologize, forgive, carry on. Same answer from dad and mom. Always. It's critical to have one-on-one relationship with every child every week. And 
Building consensus around rules in the family is one of the most powerful principles I learned. Please share this session and if you haven't yet, please do hit subscribe. Without any further ado, please enjoy this session of Dedicated.com with Warren Rustand. Today we have the amazing opportunity to sit with Warren Rustand. Warren is a very successful businessman. Warren, you've served five different American presidents. I know that you do a lot of altruistic work, um, but today we're not speaking to Warren, the CEO. Today we're speaking to Warren, the dad. Warren, please can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of a dad are you? Well, the, the best uh, introduction would be if I had one of our children here to do that, because they may have a very different view of how I am as a father <laughs> than I would. So I'm not so sure I can tell you what kind of a dad I am. I can, we can talk about some principles and values, I'm sure. But So I grew up in a family that was very poor, and um, we lived on a farm, an isolated farm near the Canadian border. And we had no uh, indoor plumbing, we had no electricity, it was very, very difficult. And somewhere along the way... Uh, We moved out to California. My dad became quite successful in real estate development. We did fine. But I came from a family that, um, uh, that had some difficulties and challenges. So I didn't, my father was a wonderful man, but he died at an early age and he wasn't my mentor for a long time. Uh, my mother always had difficulties and challenges, as do my sisters. So uh, it, was, it was not a perfect family in any way. And, uh, and then when I met my wife at the university, um, I came to discover that she came from a great family and I began to learn the elements of a great family, and that's really important, what makes a great family. It's like sports teams. What makes a great team versus a mediocre team versus an average team? There are always differences, and there are things that great teams do, great families do, that other families do not. And I had to learn those principles and values, principally from my wife, and we've always seen ourselves as co-CEOs, partners, uh, as equals in raising our families. Now, when we got married... Um, We found after four years of marriage that it was biologically impossible for the two of us to ever have children. It was never going to happen. And we ran into a young doctor who had done some studies in fertility, and he checked us both out and then put my wife in the hospital and reconnected the plumbing and the wiring. I don't know the technical terms for that, but helped us through that process. And 30 days later, she was pregnant, and every two years oh. we had a baby. So I still don't know how it happened. I don't, have any, I don't have any idea <laughs> about these things, right? So we were, we were blessed to have children. We have wonderful children, and, uh, and I love every minute being around them. So it's a lot of fun. When you say great teams do certain things, can you please translate this to a family context for us? Well, yeah, I think the things that I've learned from sport, and I played sport my entire life. And so what I've learned from sport is that great teams are disciplined. They're committed to a higher vision. They have specific rules that govern their team in the journey. They have very specific values that they live every day. And the more they do these things over and over again, the better they become as a team. There are other teams who have the same set of regimens, let's say, but for some reason they don't discipline themselves to do them regularly. And as a result of that, um, they don't end up doing quite as well. Almost every successful sport team we have, uh, they have several things in common, right? Uh, they have a goal or a vision as to where they're going. They want to win a championship. They want to be the best that they can be. And secondarily, they have talented players, right? As our children are talented players, yes. right? They're all gifted. They're all different. They're all unique in every way, right? Just as each athlete is unique on a sports team. And then they regularly practice the disciplines that they must practice in order to be successful. 
And whether that's going to school, doing your homework, exercising regularly, eating the right foods, uh, obeying your parents, whatever it happens to be, children who practice those things on a regular basis do very well, just as athletes do. And so I think we have to have this broader vision of, um, of who we are. I think sometimes we're, we're born into parenthood and all of a sudden we, we can't find ourselves. We don't know what to do because there's no training. All, everything is on the job. Well, in the four years that my wife and I lived with the knowledge that we might not have children, we studied how to be parents. We read every book that we could read. We went to every seminar we could go to. We formally attended university classes on being parents. We wanted to be great parents. We wanted to have a great family. And we think most families are premeditated. They're not by chance. So the more we decide what we want to be, the yeah. better the opportunity to have the outcome we want. So we spent a lot of time thinking about it. So we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do with our family when we set about having that family, when we were blessed to have children. Yeah. So what you're speaking about is a lot about intent. Yes, intent to, being intentional or intentionality is critical in our individual relationships with our children, our spouse, and within the broader context to the family. Earlier, we discussed the difference between being proactive and being reactive in the yes. family and with the children especially. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Being proactive in the family, we think, is uh, very important. While there will always be circumstances where we have to react in our lives, in business, in our communities, and certainly in our families. The more proactive we become, we begin to preempt some of the kinds of reactions that we may have to have. And so we believe that families are driven by, first by a vision of who they are. So when you come to our home, which I hope you do, Philip, you come to our home. I will. In Tucson, Arizona, uh, the, when you open the door and walk in, the very first thing you will see is the Rustan family vision statement. If you read that statement, you will know who we are, what we're about, and how we live our lives, okay? So we have a vision of who we are as a family. And so we also have values, and they hang by our back door because our children use the back door more than the front door. <laughs> and so they, we have our family values up there, and there are 11 family values. Love all, have fun, respect everyone, have integrity, honesty, things like that. And so they see them coming in and out. And when we find a child not practicing those things, then we can take them to the back door and we can have a discussion about what our values are. Yeah, and how do you go about that? Do you then uh, talk to the child and say, hey, we're, you're in breach of our constitution and we need to talk about this? Or how does it work? We generally don't use that tone of language. What we, yes. do, what we do is we invite them into a discussion. Okay. It's about we right? Not you or me. It's about we. And we have a belief system and we have a way of acting. And when we act out of that, then we have to have this discussion. Yes. And so we'll have that discussion. But it's not an equal discussion, is it? It's, uh, it's equal in the sense that we're both uh, trying to solve a problem. Yes. Right? Because a problem has manifested itself. But it's not equal in the sense one is an adult and one is a child. Mm, that's what I mean. The child will not invite you to have a discussion. Hopefully, as they grow and understand the system yes. and how it works, then they'll invite us into a discussion from time to time. Which is something that you want. I mean, That's in this exactly case, right. everybody is living these values. So one of the things we've done from the children's earliest age is we have conversations with them. Yeah. We have two chairs in our bedroom, and those are the conversation chairs. <laughs> and my wife is particularly good at it, and I, I continue to learn at it. But it's, it's we have individual conversations with our children every day about their life, 
about yeah. where they're going. We ask lots of questions. We don't make very many pronouncements, but we ask lots of questions. Yeah. And we get the child into a process of discussing everything about their life so that they'll always feel free and open to discuss the things in their life as they yeah. get older, right? And then they graduate sometime in their teens to two chairs that we have in our living room. They're different chairs. They're more equal chairs, yeah. right? Where we're inviting them into a broader discussion about life and where they're going and how they're going to get there and what they want from life, right? And, and from time to time, there will be difficulties or challenges with disagreements, and we'll oftentimes use those chairs as the point of discussion, right? And we recently had a birthday about five days ago for my wife, and uh, I asked the children to write the five greatest memories they have of their wife, and every one of the children mentioned those chairs as a point of discussion, as a way of, in, of, of showing love and affection yes. and conversation. Well, the chairs are a beautiful method of doing things or way of doing things because you have to be present. I mean, you're using the yes. system. Okay, we, we're sharing a space now and we are very present, but we're doing this intentionally. And so by means of these chairs, you can kind of create that space. And we may, and we may too often yeah. allow long periods of time to go without discussing things with our children. Yeah. We need to do that on a daily basis. How was school? How do you like your teachers? How are you doing in each class? How is your coach today? How are your teammates? Yes. All we have to do is ask questions. And when the child talks a lot, there's self-discovery. And in self-discovery, there's growth, right? And so we have to facilitate the child's growth and development. We don't have to demand it, right? We have to facilitate it. Yes. We have to allow them to grow and develop. So we believe that every family, like every sports team, has boundaries within which it functions. And within those boundaries, there are rules and there are referees. If you go outside those boundaries, then things become non-negotiable. But inside the boundaries, everything is pretty negotiable. We can work things out. As long as people are trying to live by the rules or doing the best they can, even though there are failures, even though there are errors in judgment, even though there are challenges and difficulties, as long as they're doing their best and working hard at it, then the referees, being the parents, can work with them to facilitate, again, the rules of the game and the playing of the game. And if there's a mistake, there is, again, the willingness to forgive. So in addition to the vision that drives a family and the values that govern the journey that we're on, uh, there are rules that dictate the field of play. Right? Yes. And there will be difficulties, challenges, disagreements, anger, frustration. All those things get expressed in a family. But if we have a process by which we address all of those things, and it's known to all the participants in the family, then it relieves a lot of pressure. But if we spontaneously combust, right, if we get angry when they get angry, if we lash out, if we use bad language, if we get drunk, if we use drugs, if we don't facilitate the health of that child by our own behavior, then we run the risk of aborting the game. And then the child will make decisions on their own and separate and apart from the family. Yes. And the family is the fundamental organizational unit of every society on planet Earth. We're either tribes, clans, or families. But there are no societies that are organized exclusively by individuals yeah. on planet Earth. Yeah. So we have to be good at this. This is how we spend our lives. Yes, we have eight or ten hours a day when we work. We have recreation. We have lots of things. But what we have that's central to all of us is family. 
And what we want to do is to provide the best family experience we possibly can. Because we spend so much time in family, why, why wouldn't we want it to be happy? And therefore, I think if we can build from vision and values and a very few rules, very few rules that we all understand and play by. Is there a rule book? No, I don't think there's a rule book. I think every family is slightly different. For your family? For our family, there's no rule book. We have very, very few rules. They're mostly governed by our values. Okay. Integrity, honesty, play fair, work hard, have fun, those kinds of things. Yes. But from time to time, there are, there are principles that have to govern a family. For instance, one of our principles for our children is forgiveness. That when a child hurts another child, when they have a disagreement or anger, one child has to ask to be forgiven. The other child has to accept that forgiveness, right? And apologize, accept the apology, and then agree to move on. In many societies today... Uh, we feel like the, we have to separate the children, we have to call time out, we have to put a child in a room, shut the door, penalize them, and so forth. We don't think that's the way society works. We think society goes on, even after the incident. So what we want to do is have our children apologize, forgive, and then continue playing together. Yeah. Because we think that's how society works best. So that particular principle is one of forgiveness. We think that's one of the governing principles that we have in our, funny, in our family. Another is that we, we have a family system around work because we believe that if we teach children to work, we build their self-esteem, we build their self-worth. So starting at a very early age, we have a list on our refrigerator of the Rustan family and each child's name and what it is they need to do to be a member of the family. They don't get paid for this. Every day. Every day. Yeah, and these are pretty solid, except as a child becomes more mature. For example, when a child is quite young, uh, they may be tasked to simply pick up their toys. Yeah. When they get a little older, it's pick up your toys and make your bed. And when they get older yet, it's pick up your toys, make your bed, and do your laundry. And give me those cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> so they're learning, they're learning then, right, to work. But we have another list as well, and it's called incentive compensation. And incentive compensation are those jobs that a child can do that for which they earn money. Now, we define the job, the amount of money that's paid, and the date by which it has to be done, and the fact that my wife and I have to agree that it's going to be done, and it was done well. You sign off on it. We sign off on it, right? So that way they can earn money. Now, when they earn money, we decide you create a family bank. You create a family bank so they learn to save money, and we pay interest on the money they save. And we can create a financial statement for them every month so they can see their balance. They know how much money they have. And they can buy their own clothes. They can buy their own computer. They can buy their own cell phone. They can do a lot of things on their own. And what we find with children when they're spending their own money, they become very conservative about how they spend. Yeah, of course. Right? Because they're protecting their own money. It's difficult to make money. Yeah. That's right. So now as they get to be teenagers, we can teach them with the money they've earned, they can buy stocks, they can buy bonds, They can invest in different things. They could buy animals and raise them. They could do a host of things. And so they learn supply and demand, and they learn profitability, and they learn the cost of goods. They learn all those things. So by the time they're 18, when they leave our house to go off to university and find their way in the world, they're financially literate. Yeah. Right? So there's a system for family, for work, for earning, for play, for all the things, for adventure. If we have that system in place, then children are governed by that system. That's the boundary within which people play, yeah. called family. And so we think, again, intentionality makes a big difference for children. Yeah. And we've 
Uh, we have a wonderful family. Our seven children are terrific children, and they've each found their way in the world, and they're doing very, very well. And we think it's because they had a very wholesome, productive, happy, you know, childhood. And that has led them to be happy, productive, wholesome adults. And we think that's our responsibility. My wife and I are, and we talked earlier, my wife and I are co-creators. We're co-CEOs. We're partners. Now, this isn't her duty and responsibility. It's not my duty and responsibility. It's our duty and responsibility. Yes, we share it. And when we talk about family, I, I don't talk about my children. I talk about our children. Yes. Right? Our experiences. Our family. So we, our, ours is more powerful than I or me. Yeah. And we think that's important for children to learn as well. No I in team. That's right. Exactly right. Can you more stuff that we can apply in terms of resources, like books, courses, anything like that? There are a lot of great books and a lot of great speakers out there. I always like to listen to people who have actually done what they're speaking about or have done what they are writing about, right? So uh, Richard and Linda Iyer, E-Y-R-E, have written about 50 books, best-selling books, on children. Okay. They have a series of joy books, The Joy of Responsibility, The Joy of Accountability, The Joy of Happiness, a whole series of joy books. And uh, I find uh, one of the books was recently a bestseller called um, The Entitlement Choice, right? It's this notion that children today feel entitled to a good life because their parents have a good life, right? So they feel entitled to have whatever their parents have. And this notion that if we teach them to work and assume responsibilities and not give them a lot, as opposed to earning a lot, uh, then they have a better, happier adulthood. So those books are quite good. I think they're good. Another author is Phil Dembo, D-E-M-B-O. And Phil has written a couple of really good books on um, parenting. Right? Okay. I asked to be a parent. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I asked to be a parent. And we chose to be parents. Yes. So why wouldn't we want to have a great family? Yeah. Yeah, have a great family. And so I think that it's, uh, we believe it's entirely possible to create great families. And we think their principles are simple. And as long as they're executed every day and they're consistent, then children will be nurtured by that. Did you develop the vision statement together with the children? Does it, does it change and grow over time or is it set in stone and this is what it is? In regard to the vision statement, uh, for our family, it was best to develop it together. So nine of us sat around the table. When we did it, the youngest child was about three years old. The oldest child was about 16. Okay. And so we started with three by five cards, and we asked the children to write down a single word on each card that best described our family. And so they'd write joy or happiness or beatings or floggings or whatever it happens to be, right? <laughs> whatever words they chose. And so we finally had about 250 words. Okay. And then we began to compare words. Do we mean joy? Do we mean happiness? Right? And we would combine words and so forth. And we ended up with about 50 words that we felt defined our family. And then um, the children and my wife asked me and our oldest son if we'd be willing to begin to draft something or using those words to, to determine concepts that we believed in. And then finally, we presented our work And they said, well, that's not quite it. And there was some editing, and we went back and forth several times. And finally, we presented a statement that, in fact, uh, everyone in the family held up their hand and said, that's our family. And that's been in place for over 25 years. Not okay. a single word has been changed. Oh. And each year at our family meeting, we put that on the table and ask if it should be changed. And it's never been changed. What is the family meeting? The family meeting is, a, we do an annual family meeting. 
the agenda is put together by the children. The meeting is run by the children. My wife and I are advisors to the meeting. And we take up any ad agenda items that uh, are important to the family. For example, uh, where will we travel together this year? Where will our vacations be together this year? Uh, because we all live multi in a multi-generational way on a common piece of property, then w do we want to talk about some of the rules that govern our living together? Some of the things, are there incidences that we have to be concerned about? Are there construction projects or capital projects that we want to put in place? Those kinds of things, yeah. It's almost like a, well, it is like a community. You have three generations in place. That's amazing. And in America, um, there are very few multi-generational families yes. living together where that's very commonplace as we travel throughout the world, particularly in the eastern part of the world. It's, uh, it's much more commonplace, right? Uh, but it's very unusual. So we're very happy that we are able to do it. We have a great time together. It takes a lot of patience to live together, uh, but it's it's wonderfully rewarding. Yeah, and the underlying principle is forgiveness. Like we said, you can resolve right. uh, conflict by walking away, it's, but it's not a very constructive way of doing things. Well, then you keep the anger with you. You keep the, the bitterness with you, right? Yes. We have to find the space to create a resolution that's good for both parties. We talked a bit earlier how it can be completely overwhelming being a dad. Can you share a bit um, or a situation that, that you found difficult or that you weren't really able to deal with or were able to deal with and how did you do it? Well, we've had many circumstances. Every family has circumstances that are challenging, that are difficult. Um, but that's true of life. That's the nature of life, isn't it? Is to overcome challenge, is yes. to overcome hardship and difficulty. You've had them yourself in your own family. So you understand. When our second son is, was born, I was in the operating room uh, with my wife and then we went to the recovery room. And the doctor came in and I said, Doctor, how is Scott? He was our second son, just born. And he said, he won't live through the day. And um, so when you're, as a father, you're faced with uh, the death of a child. Um, it's an extraordinary emotional experience. And my wife and I experienced that at that moment in time. It was very hard. It was very difficult. Um, the good news is that Scott lived, and today he's a healthy six foot two inch, 220-pound, great young man, um, but it was difficult. Yeah. And uh, it was caused because uh, my wife was shopping, and her placentia ruptured. And when that happens, the child's deprived of oxygen, and you have to get the child out as quickly as possible. And Scott was deprived of a certain part of his brain uh, with oxygen. And as a result, it's difficult for him to sort out social circumstances and situations. Uh, other than that, he's a normal, normal child in every way. But it created a special needs situation for his educational life. Um, and he's had to learn compensating skills, learned how to adjust and so forth. From that very difficult emotional first inkling that Scott's not going to live through the day to allowing to, to work with him to get the right schooling, to get the right teachers, um, to be certain that he had every opportunity to be successful was really important. Um, and so we were fortunate uh, that, that Scott's had a very good life and is doing very, very well. We're very proud of him. But those circumstances happen to every child, every person, right? Yes. And, and then we have to appreciate the fact that each of us has to overcome difficult times. And so we had to give an extraordinary effort with Scott to give him the best opportunity to be successful. And fortunately for us, he took that opportunity Uh, he studied hard, he worked hard, he uh, did everything he could do within his capacity to be an exceptional person, which he is today. So we were very, very fortunate in that respect. So each of us, I think, has those unique challenges and hard times. I recall one time I was on my way to the airport flying to New York City to close a transaction. 
We'd been working on it for six months. It was very important for us. It's the biggest deal we'd ever done. I was on my way to the airport when my wife called, and uh, she said, Scott's had an incident at school, and he wants his dad. And I said, but you know where I'm going. I'm going to New York. Close this transaction. It's very important. Uh, it, it's, it's at a tipping point. We have to get this done. Yes. And so therein lies the conflicting values, right? Father, businessman. Yeah. Right? And it was easy for me, right? Because I had predetermined that my role in the family and family was the most important thing in my life, more important than business. Yeah. It was easy for me to turn the car around, to go back, to hold Scott for three days, and to get him back where he needed to be yeah. because he wanted his dad at that moment in time. Yes. But um, we, have to, we have to determine what our values are going to be. We have to decide what our priorities are going to be in life. To be a great dad, we have to make the decision that it's more important than anything else we're doing. Yes. Right? So that lifestyle choice of putting family first is important. So when I schedule my time, I always put in family events and circumstances first. And when we were using paper calendars many years ago before electronics, I would write in red ink all the family activities, and then I would write in pencil everything else, my business, my community, and my own personal goals and objectives, right? You have those four. So I'd have those four, family, business, community, and self in that order. Family's always first. So I always put family in ink because I couldn't erase it. Yeah. Right? But I could always erase the pencil. So I'd always schedule family things first and everything else would flow around family. And by making that choice, I made a statement to my family. Whenever they looked at my schedule, they always could see that they were first. And you can do the same thing electronically, right? You can highlight or use italicized words or you can, you can emphasize it in a certain way on your electronic calendar also that says family is first and most important. So it's part of a family system. It's a, it's a way of thinking about family. And this is, you're, you're doing an amazing thing here, which is helping dads become better by listening to other dads that have had an experience. This is very important because none of us get the training as we talked about. All of us would like to be very successful at home. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. So we have to help each other learn and grow through this process. And when we do that, we add value to all dads everywhere. I know you have this very powerful view of how to achieve goals with your buckets and then driving activities underneath. Can you share that in a family perspective, please? Um, yes, I can. What we've taught our children is that there are these four buckets in life, right, that I just mentioned, family, business, community, and self. And what I do is I select my top three priorities in each of those buckets. So now I have 12 priorities that I'm working on all the time. That's a lot. Yep. And so my daily schedule reflects the activities that I have to do in order to achieve those goals. Sometimes we get into our business environment, we, go, we leave the family and we get into our business environment and we react to those things that just kind of roll over us. People who have questions, employees that want to talk to us, circumstances with clients, whatever it might be. But I've always found that to achieve at a high level, one must op operate on my goals right, as opposed to someone else's goals. My agenda as opposed to someone else's agenda. So under my highest goal in business, I will list the activities and the dates by which they have to be done to achieve that goal. The same thing is true in family. For example, uh, perhaps my, my highest goal right now is to enhance my relationship with my wife. So what could I do about that in my highest goal from an activity perspective? 
Well, one is I could plan to go away with her every quarter for two days. Another is I could plan to have a date with her every Friday night, right? A third is that I could buy her a gift even when it isn't her birthday and anniversary, just a gift because I love her. Fourth is I could leave her a note that she would discover sometime during the day that expresses my feeling for her. So those are specific activities that would allow me to achieve my goal of enhancing my relationship with my wife. Now, what we do also is my wife and I sit down every Sunday evening for two hours. We have a planning session. Sit down in those two important chairs in our bedroom, and we sit down there and we go through every child's needs in the family and where they are in their life every week. So we plan and organize activities around those children. It's really critical for dads to have one-on-one activity with every child every week. Schedule that in as a priority on your schedule, right? So it might be an hour at the car wash. It might be two hours having breakfast. It might be going to the zoo. It might be any number of things where you have one-on-one relationship with your child. It's also important for the mother to do that. And so that the parents can coordinate the activities in the family so that one-on-one time can happen. It may be more difficult for us only because we have seven children. You have five children, right? So <laughs> Five babies. Five babies. <laughs> At one time, five babies under two. So it, be- it becomes a bit complex, right? It becomes a bit complex, but it's all... Yeah, it's manageable. It's manageable. Yeah. And when we do that, we get different results with the children than if we, all, if we treat them only as part of a larger whole. Yeah because we can speak to individual issues that they have. They're individuals. So we have to help build them. One might be want to be a ballerina and the other wants to be a football player, right? And another wants to be a scientist and we have to be able to develop their interests one-on-one. So I think there's, there are ways of thinking these things through mm. that make it comprehensive for a family instead of just a one-off activity. But again, this is intent and proactivity, yes. which leads me into my question of time. It costs a lot of time to do all of these things. And I know you've got some really good strategies on time management. Please, can you share those strategies on, your, on time? One of the most important concepts that all of us have to embrace is the value of time. So we get 86,400 seconds a day to live. It goes away at midnight, and if we're lucky, we get 86,400 seconds more the next day. If we live to be 75 years of age, right, we get 700,000 hours, 28,000 days. That's our life expectancy. It only matters what we do with time. That's the only important thing. So time is the critical issue. And so I believe that every moment, every ounce of time has to be planned and thought through, that Way too often we are frivolous with time. We waste time thinking that we'll never grow old, thinking that we have the most time in the world, right? And when we get there, we think it was only yesterday that I was a teenager. It was only yesterday that I started my first business. Well, I just celebrated my 75th birthday two days ago, okay? So I understand those numbers really well. And as I look back over my time and and my time here on earth, I'm pleased with how I valued time, but I had to learn the importance of time. When I, when I worked for the President of the United States, my job was to manage his time and plan his time. And what I learned was every minute counts for the most important person in the world. Every minute counts. And what I further learned in working with people who were exceptional business leaders, exceptional parents, exceptional politicians, 
they all understand the value of time. Those who don't understand the value of time will have difficulty in their lives in some way because they'll be frivolous with the most valuable commodity that we have. Mm. It's not gold or silver, it's time. On the note of time and how valuable it is, can you talk a bit about media and technology, how we use it as an enabler, but also as a time squanderer? Well, we live in this beautiful world where technology plays a very significant role and will continue to play an ever more increasing role in our lives. But we have to be very careful because technology is a great blessing, but it's a great curse at the same time. And so we have to be careful how we use it, particularly with children. We should not use technology as a substitute for parenting, for instance, and we should not use it as an incentive for children. If you'll be still, if you'll eat your dinner, if you'll do your chores, then I'll let you have two hours on the tablet or I'll let you play your games, right? It's the wrong, uh, it's, it's, it's an inverse kind of problem that we have. So I think what we want to do is to allow children to understand the value of technology. How to utilize that in their education and school how to gain access to information. But as parents, we should also have parental controls on all technology so that we know every email, every text, every chat room, everything has been done on that phone or in the technology by that child during the course of a day. That we have the right to have access to everything that they do as a parent. And the child should know that and understand that. And if we build trust with our child, then they won't have any problem with us doing that. We should be very careful to use it as a device not to parent. So we all get in the car, we're going on a drive somewhere. So right away we turn on the video machine in the back and they get their headphones on and we get on our cell phone, right? And so why aren't we singing? Why aren't we reciting poetry? Why aren't we asking questions? Why aren't we talking as parents to our children? Why aren't we using time to educate? Right? And so every time we allow a child to get into their own world, away from their parents, away from their siblings, we're robbing them of valuable family time. So we have to be very cautious and very thoughtful about how we do that. And it's really important of teaching this understanding of how dangerous misuse of social media can be in terms of time, because our children are ever more so exposed to this. We know many children and adults who become so self-absorbed in their technology they lose track of time, yeah. and they'll do it for hours at a time. Yeah. It's equally dangerous for, for uh, adults to yeah. do. We have to be very disciplined and very careful. So we spend our summers at a cabin in the high mountains with our children and grandchildren uh, where there's no TV, where there's no cell phone coverage, and all they can do is be outdoors, hiking, climbing, riding, doing crazy fun things, right? That's nice. And so our children and grandchildren are far less dependent on technology than most children their age, simply because they have alternative activities that are exciting and interesting to them. So when you walk in our home, I hope you'll come and visit. Uh, when you walk in our home, there'll be a basket by the front door and by the back door. And we'd be uh, pleased if you would just put your cell phone in there and turn it off or turn it on airplane mode or vibrate so that we won't be interrupted because our family and when you're in our home, it's about building relationships. It's about person to person kinds of relationships. Question around relationship in marriage. How did it feel when the young Warren suddenly had to share first place um, when your first child arrived? Well, we can live a pretty selfish life until we get married. Yes. All right. And then, and then again, as we said before, we become partners in life. And my wife and I have been partners for 53 years. So we were married when we were 21 years old. 
So um, it's, it's been an amazing journey for us. I've learned a great deal from my wife. She's a powerful woman, smart, strong, committed, dedicated, been an active leader in everything from child abuse to spousal abuse to education to all kinds of things in our state and in our region. So she's a very well-acknowledged leader. That's also been a great gift to our children to see their mother as a leader of others, which has been very important. And all of our children have grown up to be leaders in their schools, on their sports teams, and now in their businesses and in their careers. But it's very important for us to be willing to sacrifice and to give others credit, to acknowledge others' efforts, um, to be forgiving, um, because there will always be conflicts between husbands and wives. And for those conflicts to be resolved so they aren't damaging to the children. This notion that we are living together, we've chosen to live together, we've chosen to share our lives together. And in that process, we're going to age, right? I'm still as good looking as when I was 21 years old, at least least as good looking, right? So we're going to age, our bodies are gonna take on different shapes, We're we're gonna have experiences along the way that are gonna transform us, good and bad. But we've committed to love each other and to be with each other and to spend our lives together. And it's the greater notion of being part of a partnership that's more important than my selfish needs, and more important than how I feel about my own self-interests. And so we have to be willing to be very community-based within a family. And all too often our egos become so sharp and so strong that it creates problems in families. We have to be willing to subordinate our egos to the good of the total and to the family as opposed to dominating the family. And so I think we have to be very thoughtful and very cautious about how we are in the family. It's quite different than how we might be in our business yes. as a leader of a business, right? Uh, because uh, I think we have a transition point. And the transition point is from when we leave the office to when we arrive at home. Do you have a ritual for when you arrive home? I have a very short distance from my office to my home. It's about five minutes. And in that five minutes, I have to prepare myself to be a great father and a great husband. Yes. I don't come in the door being a great businessman or a great community leader, right? I come in to, re- to help my wife co-parent our children, and not to take business calls, One of the worst things we do today with our technology is we'll be talking with a child or with our wife and a call will come in. Oh, excuse me, honey, excuse me, I've got to take this call. I've got to take this call. We only have to do that three or four times and the person with whom we're speaking will know that they are second place to that phone, whoever's on the phone. And we do that enough times with a child and the child will disengage with the parent. Because the parent has sent a strong signal that whatever they're doing with that technology is more important than what the child was saying to them or the discussion they were having with the child. And it ruptures families. It destroys family relationships. And we have to be ever thoughtful about how we interact with children. So on that, on coming home, leaving the CEO at the door, and now dad is home, Can you share your thoughts or what you think best practices are for people, parents or dads who work at home? I mean, do, do you remove yourself and then and you're in the home office or how do you do that? Because like with technology, I work mainly at home and I can see how I often inter- intermingle technology and home and family 
if I'm not aware of it, it's very difficult. Well, again, it, re <clears throat> it requires great discipline to do this, right? So it's important, I think, that even if you're working at home and working virtually, that you have an office. The office has a door. You go into your office and you do your work. And when you come out, you close the door to your office and leaving your career and your business there confined and you become the father, even in your own home. Yes. You become the father, the husband, right? The co-creator of this family. And so as a result of that, if you can discipline yourself to do that, the chances of you having a successful marriage and family are greatly enhanced. But if you allow it to just bleed over so that you're always on the phone, regardless of where you are in the home, regardless of what you're doing with the children, you're always taking business calls, you're always running in and out of the office, I think it creates a blurred process for the family and a much more difficult process for the family. Make the boundaries crisp and clear. Make it clear to the people with whom you work as well. You know, in, in our businesses, we teach parenting classes. In our businesses, we teach how to be good moms and dads, how to have good parents, how to be good children. You know, I mean, we teach those things, right? We, we try to help people understand the importance of family. And what we find is that people who are happy at home are much more productive in the workplace. Yep. People who have stress at home are much less productive in the workplace, right? So if we can help them be better parents, whether they're single parents or in a dual parenting situation like you and I, the more we can help them be great parents and have great families, the better citizens are going to be and the more productive we're going to be in our workplace. We talked a bit about consensus earlier. How do you find consensus with your wife, say on educational issues? There might be something, okay, you've defined a joint mission and a joint vision, that's clear. Right. But there might be something where your view off of the playing field is here and your wife's is over there. How do you then find common ground? How do you do that? Well, the one thing we know for certain is that husbands and wives bring completely different life experiences into a marriage, right? <laughs> and from the very beginning, it's a compromise. From the very beginning, it's conflict resolution, right? And what we have to do is to find ways to resolve differences. And sometimes those differences are very sharp, but sometimes they're very nuanced and they're very subtle. But in either event, we have to be able to find it. So my own leadership style is one of collaboration and consensus, even in the workplace. I'm not a dictator. I don't yell and scream, right? We find ways to build teams and for those teams to be successful. Building a team is building a family, right? It's the same. And so we have to realize that there are multiple leaders in any situation. Oftentimes, as our children grow, they are leaders themselves, very strong, with opinions, with views, with thoughts. We have to be willing to accommodate those in the context of the broader good. And so it's important to, to drive from a strong vision of a family where we have um, a desire for every member of that family to be very successful and very happy. And if we do that, we're in better shape, right? We're just in a better place. If our egos want us to win, if we're in a win-lose situation with our spouse, it becomes very difficult. If we're in a win-lose situation with a child, it becomes quite difficult. So finding consensus, collaborating, takes more time. But the end result, the outcome, is always better. And over a long period of time, in a win-lose situation, husbands and wives don't want to live together anymore. Yeah. That's why we have such a high divorce rate around the world, right? And climbing. In the United States today, 52% of all marriages end in divorce. The percentage of divorces is even higher among second marriages than it is among first. So it's this notion that I think we really have to work at finding 
um, consensus in all that we do. And that, that means sometimes that my views won't win, won't be, won't be chosen. In our family, for example, there's some non-negotiable, no drugs, yeah. right? No alcohol. Yes. Those are just choices our family has made, yes. right? And those are non-negotiable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I suppose it can be quite difficult finding consensus with teenagers. Any strategies or ideas you can give us around that? Well, uh, uh, how about letting our teenagers help set the rules? For example, in the United States, at 16 years of age, a, a teenager can get a driver's license, yeah. right? And so, as they're coming up to get their driver's license, we sat down with our two oldest sons to have a discussion about driving. And uh, we have family cars. We don't buy individual cars for our children, but we have family cars. And so, uh, as our son was going to go out on his first date as a 16-year-old with a young lady, uh, we began the discussion around, do you think there should be a time that you should be in? And the boys talked about that, and they decided that midnight would be a good time to be in. We'd have been okay if they said 11 o'clock or if they said 1 o'clock, but they chose midnight. So we said, yeah, so we said, that's fine. And then uh, we said, well, now, now if, what happens if you aren't in at midnight? Yeah. What Should there be a consequence? And they talked for a while, and they decided the consequence should be that if they were not in by midnight, they should lose the use of a car for a week. We said, okay. If they'd said something else, we'd have probably been okay with that too, yeah. right? Building consensus. Yeah. So our son went out on his first date. It was getting near midnight. I was in the library reading a book. My wife was sitting up in bed. Neither of us were able to sleep. It was his first time out in a car with a girl alone. And pretty soon it was midnight. And then it was 12.05. And then it was 12.10. And then it was 12.15. And finally we heard the car driving back in. He came in through the door, walked into the library, gave me the keys to the car, said, Dad, I love you, and went to bed. He had set the rule, and he knew the consequence. There was no need for an argument. There was no need for a disagreement. There was no need for some massive consultation, right? This whole notion that he helped set the rule, he helped set the consequence, and he lives yeah, by the rule. There was the also no car for a week, of course. No car for a week. He, he knew that was the rule yeah. and the consequence. Yeah. You have to stick to it, too. That's right. So I think this whole notion of, of building consensus around rules in the family is sometimes quite helpful because the child then can't use the excuse you're being unfair, Right. You're not listening to me. You're being unfair. You want to take that away from a child as an argument to help them say, I help set the rule. I help set the consequence. I have to live by the rule and the consequence, just like everyone in the family does. So there are ways to, to build these collaborative techniques that allow a family to be more relaxed, to be easier, to be more fun. Yeah, we have two two-year-olds and three six-month-year-olds. And I mean, the two-year-olds, as you say, terrible too. They just ignore us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're testing. Children are brilliant. Of course. They play the mother against the father. Yeah. That's why the parents have to be so compatible and agree. Even if we come out of different family experiences into the marriage, for the marriage, for purposes of our children in the marriage, we have to agree on how we're going to treat children so that the child can't play one person against the other, right? Because they'll get the same answer from you that they get from your wife. That ends the game. Yeah. And they get on to more productive things. Yeah, of course. But if they can always play that game, they'll play that game as long as they can play the game. Well into their teens, well in their 20s, they'll keep playing the game. Which will cause an issue in your relationship. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so we want to create an environment within which you don't have fissures or fractions or fragmentation, but you want to treat it holistic and integrated. And when you do that, it makes for a better family, it makes for more exciting and more fun. And, and you don't have to have, every, 
we have to just acknowledge that in our family, there are nine separate, distinct, and unique personalities and intellects, right? <laughs> we all have our own views on all kinds of stuff. But we believe the family is the most important unit, and therefore we're all willing to sacrifice and accommodate and compromise for the purpose of the family. Have you had situations where one of your children ha had difficulties carrying this vision? There are certainly circumstances where uh, one of our children has acted out or decided to do something that maybe runs counter to um, the playing field or the rules of the playing field. And we sit and have that discussion with them okay. and, um, and bring them back to the vision of the family, really? bring them back to the, the whole, yeah. And, and all of us do stupid things when we're teenagers and other times, right? We just do dumb things because we don't know. We don't have as much wisdom as we do later in life. And I suspect even later in life we do dumb things, yeah. right? So, <laughs> so we have to have somebody pulling us back to the center, right? Pulling us back and, and helping us understand what our responsibilities are and what our obligations are as a member of the family. Yeah. And that each member of the family is a leader for every younger member of the family. Earlier we talked about a concept called parenting against your bias. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, each of us, again, comes into this family with our own biases and prejudices, right? When we get married, when we have children. And, for instance, I'm an athlete, and I love sports. That's my bias. I love sports. And so it would be very easy for me to, to want to take our children and have them become great athletes and great sportsmen and focus on that. But knowing that that's my bias, I have to parent as a dad against that bias. So I needed to also take them to the museum, yeah. to the symphony, to the theater, to show them that there's a range of things in life that we need to appreciate and experience, right? And so along with their sports, they need to have an appreciation for those who are gifted in other, in other ways, right? As musicians, as actors, right? As business people, whatever it might be. And so I think sometimes we have to parent against whatever bias we bring into yeah. the family. Sometimes we'll have a, a parent will come into a family and they were an only child. And we'll have someone else, a spouse, come into that marriage relationship and they came from a large family. Yeah. Those are totally different environments and there are biases that come with that. And when we come together as husband and wife, we need to parent against those biases, right? We need to be sure that we create our own boundaries, our own family values and vision separate and apart from what our parents did. Yeah. For, for whatever we do with our, whether we have one or three or five or ten children, whatever it is we're going to do with our children. Any strategies you can share that ensure that you don't lose yourself completely as a parent or as a person? Because it's very easy to give yourself up. You know, you still need time for yourself and time to recharge those batteries. Yes. What are your strategies around that? Well, I think it's important that we don't lose our own identity. And we have identity as a business person, right? We have an identity individually in our community, what we're doing in the community. And we have those things that we do for ourselves, the books that we read, the music that we listen to. All of those say to the family unit, I'm unique also. And we have to be a respecter of persons, right? Meaning that we have to respect individuality within the family. And a part of our family vision statement speaks to the fact that each of us has the obligation to help the other reach their full potential. Okay. okay? And un through unconditional love. Right? So this notion that if you're my brother, I'm going to try to help you be the best actor you can be if you'll help me be the best sportsman I can be. Right? So we can support each other in our differences and our uniqueness. Something I wanted to ask you, I mean, your approach is, is pretty clear. You're very de defined and intentional around being a parent. 
Can you share an episode that made you reconsider some of your standpoints and how you do parent? Our whole life has been, uh, and for my wife and I, our whole life has been learning to be better parents, right? Because we certainly didn't corner the market on how it is to be a good parent. There, there's good parenting going on in every society, in every place on earth, and every time we travel, every time we meet another family, we learn, we learn something from that family that benefits our family. And so we're an amalgamation of principles and values that we've learned from others. Some came from my wife's family. My learning came from our family. We were more of a dysfunctional family in many ways, but that, would, that helped me learn, right? It helped me know what I wanted. But as I've traveled to other places, um, multi-generational families in China, for example, I've found some wonderful examples of families that live and work together in a very constructive and positive way. And so I've been able to take things from that. So I think, I think none of us know everything there is to know about parenting. And, and you are learning as you go with young family. Hopefully. <laughs> we have a more mature family, older family. But I think of all the things we've changed over time that have made us better, right? Yeah. Just made us better. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's a, an activity that a family is doing. For example, one of the things I learned early on is the notion of having our family choose lifestyle over career. The career is only a part of our day. It's six or eight or ten hours a day. But lifestyle is 24 hours a day, right? Yeah. So I've said, said to our children as they're growing up, if you want to, to attend to sick people at 5.30 in the morning at the hospital, become a doctor. If that's what you want for your lifestyle. If you want to be a free rock climber, you know, and do that, then that's your lifestyle. Yeah. But choose your lifestyle first. You can always make a living. You can always make enough money to live on. If you're smart and you're disciplined and you work hard, you'll always do well financially. The key is to live your life the way you want to live it. So you're happy every day. You should live in the house you want to live in. You should drive the car you want to drive. You should wear the clothes you want to wear. You should live the lifestyle you want to be. Here in Cape Town is one of the most beautiful cities in the entire world, one of the greatest environments in the entire world. And if I want that environment, then that's where I should live. I shouldn't live somewhere where I'm unhappy. I shouldn't associate with people that make me sad or angry, right? Let's live our lifestyle first. It's interesting in that construct then that all of our children went away to college and universities They all lived abroad for at least two years. They're all bilingual and bicultural. They all chose to come back and live together as yeah. a family. That was their choice because they chose lifestyle first, because of the love that they grew up with, with their brothers and sister, and because of their respect for their extended family. They chose to all live together, which, which makes that's, us feel so good. Yeah, of course, that's powerful stuff. So in a world where children go everywhere, we're so mobile today. We can work from anywhere. We can travel anywhere. For children to say, what I want most is family. What I want most is closeness with my siblings and my parents is a wonderful, wonderful honor for us as parents, but more importantly, for the way in which we live together. And uh, we have so much fun together. I mean, we're always laughing and yelling and screaming. And when I go home from work, There are going to be five or six grandchildren in the house. There are going to be three or four of our children in the house. We're just having fun. Yeah, we're just having fun. You know, it's chaotic, it's crazy, but it's fun. Yeah, it's so amazing. it's lifestyle. Yeah. It's lifestyle. It's lifestyle. And the one thing I'm so big on is that you can't make time. You can't make new time. That's such a powerful concept. I never want to go to my grave 
in my last days thinking, I wish I'd spent more time with my children. I wish I'd spent more time with my wife. And one thing is for sure, before you die, you will not say, I wish I had spent more time at the office. That's right. Or buying the airplane or getting the fast car or yeah. buying the faster boat. Or, you know, it's not about material wealth. It's about family. It's about building relationships. I think you can buy the expensive item, whatever it is that floats your boat. But it's very important to understand the opportunity cost that it costs you in time for that item. Yes. Because, I mean, you'll spend so much more hours for a more expensive item. If the hours are worthwhile, the purchase, spend them, but make an intentional decision for that. Which is what we've done. So we've invested in a mountain retreat for family. Yeah. We've invested in boats where we recreate and vacation yeah. as a family, right? So we do those things that facilitate and accelerate family activity. Yes. And we think that's how we want to spend our money and our time. Yeah, it's a purchase with a purpose. So we, we've, uh, we've been blessed to have a great family. We've been blessed to have wonderful experiences. And for example, you know, we talk about biases. I know you love to surf, right? Yeah. And your children are going to be exposed to surfing at a very early age. And they're going to have a chance to do a lot of surfing. But now, thanks to you, I'm going to have to take it to the museum. <laughs> That's right. So you have a bias, right? <laughs> it's a great bias. I grew up surfing in Southern California, oh, so I, I love surfing. But, but it's a bias, and we all have to be careful of the bias. Yeah. 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 And part of our bias sometimes is business, and we spend way too much time doing it because we love it. And we're sending the signal to our family, we love business more than we love family. Just draw the lines, right, and yeah. draw them very clearly. Yeah. And, and I think that the signal that we send to our family always has to be family's the most important thing in our lives, mm -hmm. and we'll sacrifice what's necessary for family. Yeah. Sometimes that's the illness of a child. Sometimes that's the education of a child, right? And sometimes it's the difficulty the child gets into. But also it's important to appreciate as a dad that the way we send the signal of how to love someone in our family is how we love our spouse. The greatest example we will ever send to a family, to a child, is for that child to watch us love our spouse. Yeah. They will love their spouse the same way. Is there a life lesson maybe that, that you've made that you think it's so valuable, you have to share it with other dads? Well, the first thing I would say as we think about family is um, to honor our spouse and that we should do everything possible to keep our marriages together because it's best for the children. And we think often that children are so flexible that they'll adjust to anything. But we know, and the research will show, that as children who come from divorced families very frequently experience challenges and difficulties in their teenage years and in their early 20s from the trauma of that divorce. So everything that we can do, dads, to keep our families together is important. And the first step in that is to honor our spouse and love our spouse, recognizing that each of us will go through changes in our life and difficulties in our life, but together we're stronger. And I think it's important for us to appreciate the role that our spouses play. So dads, think about the role that your wife plays in building a great family. She's quintessentially important to that. She is the matriarch of the family. Treat her as such. And when we do that, when we honor, respect, and love our spouse, our wives, we become better dads and our children become better children. Yeah. So that's an example that we have to give yeah. always. Yeah. Amazing. And if we fall short of that because of our selfishness, 
because of our greed, because of our stupidity. And we take the chance on losing that relationship. We forever alter the family. And it can never be put together again as it once was. And there are many times, I'm sure, when my wife hasn't liked me a lot <laughs> because of something stupid that I've done, okay? Because I, I, I put my hand up first when it comes to stupid, okay? Because I do a lot of dumb things. <laughs> and there are, there are occasions where she has done something that I found to be uh, not comfortable for me. But when I look at the balance of everything she has contributed to my life and to our family's life, it's enormous. It's unbelievable. So I can put up with temporary discomfort to respect her for her role and what she does. Yeah. So our wives are amazing. Yeah, Your amazing. wife and what she's doing every day yeah. is amazing, right? And we need to respect that and yeah. honor that. There may not be anything else on earth like a mother's love for a child. Yeah. We see that in the animal kingdom and we see that in the human kingdom, right? I mean, it's, um, it, it's extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. And we are observers, hopefully also participants, but we get to observe that phenomenal, phenomenal love and connection between a mother and a child. And it, uh, it's something that uh, we don't always understand and appreciate. What can you share with us around dads and their daughters? How do you do your part in teaching your daughter to become a strong woman in today's society? We have one daughter. Her name is Kennedy. She's a phenomenal woman, like her mother, very strong. Um, the first thing that I would urge her to do is to look at her mother's example as to what a strong woman is. And all of our children recognize how strong my, my wife is. Um, the second is, I think, to be certain that she has a good view of who she is in the world, a healthy view of who she is in the world, and that women are strong and powerful people. And they provide enormous benefit to mankind. And there are any number of examples one can cite for that. So having good role models uh, for a female is also very important. And role models that are mothers, scientists, politicians, whatever they might be. Um, women are strong and, and powerful in every way. So I think that, again, I think that the more respect they have for their mother will give them more respect for women generally. Uh, and the daddy-daughter relationship is a special relationship. And uh, our daughter and I are very close. And we do some business together. We do some activities together. And, um, and she's a terrific, terrific person. And the thing, when I look at her and see her strength, I see in her my wife and appreciate my wife. But she is a very strong, uh, our daughter is a very strong and dedicated and powerful woman, a good, a strong career woman and a great mother, an unbelievable mother. Yeah. So I think that first is a, a daughter has to look to her mother. Yes. And then she needs to look to her father who honors and respects her mother, her mother. Yeah, as a way of building her self-confidence in the role of women. Yes. And then, and then opening every avenue for, uh, for a young woman because so for many decades as we study um, women in society, so many doors were closed to women. Today we live in most societies where women can achieve whatever they want to achieve. And we should leave the, the realm of possibilities open for a young woman today. And we should encourage them to be everything that they can possibly be. And, and have them appreciate and understand that they have this unique role as a future mother. 
Dads and sons. Again, a different relationship, I think, than, than with daughters. Um, with son, it's, it's about teaching uh, a young man, I think, first to respect women and to understand and honor women's role in the world. And secondly, in the same way, to open the door of possibilities for young men, that understanding that they have the ability to achieve at whatever level they have. And, and again, every one of our children comes with their own personality, their own unique voice in the world, their own unique genetic makeup. And we have to, we have to appreciate that we can't treat our children the same, yeah. that each one is different. And our mission statement speaks to that about the differences between us. Um, that we will honor and celebrate our uniqueness, right? That we recognize within our own families how unique each person is and that we respect that and we honor it and we celebrate it and we help them achieve their potential. And young men are like that. Every young man is so different. The first child's always different than the second and the second from the third. And where a child is placed in a row of siblings will largely determine what they will become and who they will be. Mm. And it's important to understand sibling placement, right? Interesting concept. Yeah, the second child is always different than the first child in very special ways and unique ways. Interesting concept. So with us, they yes, they are born a minute apart, mm -hmm. but the boys are identical twins in right. the triplets. So they are twins, the boys, and then Alba, she's obviously not identical. Right. And then the two twins that we've adopted, they are two girls um, and they are non-identical. Right. But I mean, the triplets are obviously the same age and the twins are the same age by a few minutes and the whole group is pretty much the same age. So that's a super interesting dynamic. And to the outsider, to the person just looking at your family from the outside, the easy thing to say is, oh, they're all alike. Yes. But to you and your wife, you already know there are distinguishing differences between each member of that family. Yeah. Each child comes with a very different package of personality, intellect, DNA, yeah. right? and that will play out over their lifetime. Even though to the casual observer, yeah. they'll say, oh, they look alike, they act alike. Yeah. You'll know that's not true. Yeah. And how to build that uniqueness and, and allow them to flourish as individuals is really important because oftentimes society will want to put them together as being the same, and yet they're very unique and very different. They started very differently from the first day. Yeah. We had a similar situation. I mean, Max, one of the triplets, he almost died. A few times, actually. I mean, blood transfusions, just thinking about it makes me stressed out. I mean, we... Yeah. The one time they had to resuscitate because, you know, only these prime babies, they forget to, they, they stop breathing. They don't have the reflex yet. So Max went blue. I mean, luckily my wife had gone to, to hospital. She somehow had had a hunch. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to take an Uber so I can sit with him in the back. And she did. And, and that was so lucky. He wouldn't have made it otherwise. I mean, they're fine now, but I can see he's a fighter already. And they're all different, and they're just a few months old. I think, uh, I think sometimes uh, the uninformed, the uneducated, uh, look at lots of people and make generalizations, yeah. right? When, when all of us in this room are unique, no one has our fingerprints, no one has our DNA, no one has our genetic package, right? There are seven billion people on Earth as of December. 
and no one, not one of them, is the same as another. It's an extraordinary thing to think about. And so we bring this unique voice to the world. And our job as parents is to elevate the voices of our children so they can join a chorus in a community and make contributions to our society. And our job is so special as dads, as moms, is to allow that voice to reach its full potential in our care so that when they leave, they'll feel confident in embracing the world. Thank you, Warren. Thank you very much. Thank you, Philip, for your time. I appreciate it. Talking about my favorite subject, which is family. (laughs) Super. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you liked this session. If you did, please share this podcast. I'm sure you know someone who wants to hear this. Make no mistake, your shares are meaningful and they drive our success. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening in. Hope to catch you next time. Have an awesome day. Ciao.